Let's walk us into it a little bit. Or... Yeah. Welcome back, Greg. Like, is this what we're doing now? Yes. Oh. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Greg. Happy to be here. Greg, you are here again. We are filling a little void in the holiday season where we are unable to come together as a group to get that uh, friggin' Andrew Carnegie episode in the can. <clears throat> Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about something. I, you know, it is it is a little bit conspiratorial. There's definitely, you know, well, I'm sure your part is. I'm sure your yeah, part is yeah. much more than the stuff I read. Definitely. So, so. Um, but it is also a topic that I think a lot of people are familiar with, if only by name. You know, because I yeah. certainly knew very little about it. Surface level. Yeah. Uh, today we are talking about the world famous Iran Contra affair. And um, we kind of split it up 50-50 where I've got the Iran and you've got the Contra. Indeed. In a sense. So um, did you know much about this before? No, I think it's pretty common that most people kind of, you know, like know the, you know, the gist of the story. And um, a lot of our older listeners may remember, you know, when the trial that is uh, adjacent to this whole affair Mm-hmm. I remember when that was all televised and everything like that and statements given by the president, but uh, a lot of people don't quite understand the minutia of the of this whole scandal. So it'd be fun right. to kind of dig into that a little bit today, clear up some misconceptions. And I didn't I didn't dig too much into the um, well, you were right about my part having more conspiracy towards it, but it's it's less conspiracy and more about just um uh, propaganda and just kind of the way that the U.S. government kind of steered the situation, uh, especially mm-hmm. in regards to public opinion, that's the part that's really conspiratorial, if you ask me. Yeah. Because, like, I mean, the overarching, well, we'll get it, we'll, I'll get into it in a little bit, but basically just everybody knew that we were, you know, supporting people that were fighting against communism. That was no secret. But, again, the the details of, of the whole situation are really where things get yeah, and if we could um, maybe sum it up in a in a in a in a few sentences here, what it, this is just to if you have absolutely no clue what's going on, in a Bas- basic sense, how would you describe this situation? Nicaragua had um, a revolution in 1979 that overthrew their U.S.-backed dictatorship government, and it was a socialist uprising. Um, so they installed a communist government. Um, the Reagan administration didn't like that very much, so they started supporting anti-government guerrillas. This, uh, you know, this continued throughout the 80s, uh, even after um, the U.S. Congress outlawed the support of these groups by the U.S. government. Um, and to continue funding them, um, the U.S. government basically tried to kill two birds with one stone and uh, attempted to get hostages in Iran released by selling weapons to Iran indirectly and using that money to then clandestinely fund the Contras. That's Mm -hmm. pretty much the whole whole story summed up into one. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was looking for. Yep. Even even summing it up that much, that's still pretty wordy. (laughs) It is kind of a complicated scandal. Um, There is, you know... And I'll be getting right into this shortly, but it is kind of confusing how, you know, 
Iran comes into this, and that's part of the reason it's so funny that uh, this whole thing happened was it was pretty much right on the heels of the U.S. embargoing Iran Iran for arms sales. Which is a big part of why it was so embarrassing when this all came out. We were like, we were publicly championing championing the cause of preventing arms sales to Iran. And then (laughs) here we are (laughs) skimming a little off the top from the sales that we're doing. Exactly. It's like if your local dare officer was (laughs) slinging some crack on the side. Well, that's the perfect crime. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, yeah, do you want me to take it away and just kind of get into the uh, background of this whole situation? Sure, if you want. All right. Well, our story today begins in 1980, which... Um, as you may know, was an election year. So the election of 1980 uh, ended up resulting in a landslide victory by Ronald Reagan, actor and former governor of California. Um, As we have already talked about, we'll specifically be talking about the Iran-Contra affair, which is a political scandal that took place during Reagan's mainly, well, the scandal itself really broke during his second term, but it all kind of brewed throughout his first term. Um, and as we mentioned again, the scandal both involves illegal arms sales to Iran by the United States, as well as U.S. funding of rebel groups in Nicaragua. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with Ronald Reagan and his politics, um, first of all, go ahead and uh, do a push up and get that rock you've been living under off the top of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's obviously we're, you know, 40 years past when all this is going on, but um Reagan is still very much, um, I don't know if I'd say, well, respected by the people that, you know, yeah, are uh, of the same political mindset as him. He's, he's uh, very much a... Um, the boomer's hero. Sure, we'll call it that. Yeah. Um, so in the 1980 election, Ronald Reagan ran on a platform of anti-communism, tax cuts, deregulation, and building up the U.S. military. Um, The incumbent, Jimmy Carter, uh, was a Democrat that had served from 77 to 81. He was a fairly progressive president, um, but many people in the country were deeply unhappy with his presidency, at least as far as... um, There were some people that were, you know, not fans of, like, his, say, his civil rights, uh, you know, type... Mm -hmm legislation that he enacted um but uh a bulk of the um distaste towards his presidency uh kind of focused around a few things one was the stagflation economy so that that's basically to sum that up it's um a situation where your country is experiencing inflation and also a stagnant economy and the problem with that is like trying (laughs) trying to trying to address inflation uh, while you have a stagnant economy, a lot of the things that you would do to try and stimulate the economy may end up potentially uh, resulting in even more unemployment, which, um, or to curb inflation, to curb inflation, you might affect unemployment, which, you know, in turn makes the economy worse. It's right. kind of a sticky situation. Sure. So, um, Very delicate. Yeah. Uh, the Carter administration did kind of inherit that economy, but, um, they didn't. A lot of people saw his uh, administration as not doing enough to, um, to take care of that problem. Uh, there was there was also the energy crisis of 1979, 
So a lot of people kind of remember Carter as the guy who told you to wear sweaters yeah. inside and turn down your heat to save energy. Um, and uh, then there was the also resulting recession of 1980, which people were less than happy about. But uh, the one that tied the the piece of this or the people's distaste towards his presidency that ties in most to our story is uh, the Carter administration's response to the um, Iran hostage crisis, which the, they attempted uh, military intervention, um, and that ended up in resulting in the deaths of uh, several dozen, right? I believe, uh, like U.S. Marines or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you'll get into that more later, but just kind of filling out the background of this a little bit more. So, um, You know, real quick. <clears throat> sure. It is just, it's kind of incredible that Jimmy Carter's still alive. Yeah, he's an old dude, right? Like 90-something? 90-something? Yeah. Yeah. Made I'll it longer. the exact age real quick. Okay. Well, um, while you're doing that, we'll start talking a little bit about the Reagan Doctrine, because that's another piece of um, 96. Reagan. 96. Jeez. Whew. So another piece of policy that Ronald Reagan ran on was... Um, something that he called the Reagan Doctrine, uh, which we really can't start getting into the scandal without talking about that. So the Reagan Doctrine was a stance taken by the Reagan administration uh, that communism and capitalism cannot peacefully coexist and that we must do our best to root out communism throughout the world to the best of our abilities. So Reagan uh, stated in his February 1985 State of the Union address the following. We must not break faith with those who are risking their lives on every continent from Afghanistan to Nicaragua to defy Soviet-supported aggression and secure rights, which have been ours from birth. So, if you notice, specifically mentioned Nicaragua in there, um, which, um, again, we'll, we'll dig into here in a second. But uh, the whole idea behind the Reagan Doctrine was to thwart Soviet influence throughout the world, but most particularly in countries that were at conflict where communism was likely to take hold or already had taken hold. Um, this was like a centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy throughout the 1980s and really only ended with the fall of the Soviet Union, Union in 1991. Uh, so under this doctrine, the U.S. provided assistance to anti-communist guerrilla forces and resistance movements across the globe. Um, but today we'll specifically be talking about how that policy was applied to the case of Nicaragua, as mentioned in that quote there a Central American nation that um, at least once Reagan took office was uh, run by the Sandinista, Na Sandinista National Liberation Front, uh, which will be abbreviated throughout the rest of this podcast as the FSLN. Um, and the, the members of this organization were known as Sandinistas, another term you'll probably hear several times throughout me talking here. Sure. So... To give a little background on Nicaragua, as mentioned before, um, they were ruled by a U.S.-backed dictatorship, um, which was the Somoza family, and that uh, that dictatorship ruled from 1936 to 1979, uh, when it was overthrown in the Nicaraguan Revolution, which was led by the FSLN. The Nicaraguan Revolution was like pretty much a perfect example of the types of situation that the Reagan Doctrine was meant to apply to, and um, the fact that something like the Nicaraguan Revolution was happening so close to the U.S. Because Nic Nicaragua is really not that far away. It's, uh, I'm not sure if it's the country that's directly south of Mexico um, in Central America, uh, but it's it's one of the first couple in the string there. So, Right. 
definitely communism popping up in your backyard, not something Ronald Reagan was <laughs> too yeah. fond of, to say the least. So while the revolution in Nicaragua was successful uh, in 1979, a resistance movement was formed as early as 1980. So one year after the revolution had take, excuse me, taken place. So uh, this counter-revolution uh, counter resistance movement, or sorry, excuse me, <laughs> this resistance movement was known as the counter-revolution. Uh, <laughs> well, in Spanish, contra-revolucion, which was often shortened just to contra, so the, the very beginning of that, that word. Um, so that's generally the, the name that these groups uh, decided to take on was the contras. So many of the initial members of uh, the Contra Resistance Group were actually former members of the Somoza regime's National Guard, which really you know, should not come as much of a surprise considering the fact that the FSLN was probably none too fond of the old military guard, you know, um, mm -hmm. once they got into control. Um, but many more would end up joining in the fight against the FSLN throughout the, the ongoing war, throughout the next, uh, you know, would be about 10 years or so. Uh, but in particular, um, the people that joined the initial Contra groups uh, were largely ethnic groups that uh, occupied the Mosquito Coast region of Nicaragua. That's a real unfortunate name. <clears throat> What's interesting is it's, it doesn't have as much to do with mosquitoes as you might imagine. It's There's a group of people there that's known as, it's, it's spelled a little different, but it's basically Mosquito. Okay, well, then um, I will shift. Like an That's an unfortunate name for those people. Fair enough. Um, I imagine there's also an abundance of mosquitoes in that area as well, being Central America. But, anywho. Uh, so, these uh, these ethnic groups uh, that occupied that region um, were pretty staunchly set in the fact that they wanted autonomy and... Um, to the to a degree that was completely unacceptable by the, by the FSLN, as you might imagine, you know. Um, so, this ended up leading to the FSLN forcibly removing many of these people from their homelands and you know putting them elsewhere, which uh, certainly only you know fanned the flames of this conflict, and uh, largely ended up resulting in uh, like kind of the public opinion in Nicaragua shifting from largely supporting the um, FSLN and Sandinista government to um, a much more divided situation where more and more people were kind of supporting the, uh, the revolution or um, the Contras, excuse me, counter-revolutionaries. So um, upon taking office in 1981, Ronald Reagan almost immediately cut all U.S. aid to the Nicaraguan government, uh, which, of course, at the time was the Sandinista government. Yeah, so expected. Yep, pretty pretty obvious move for, for Reagan to do. Um, but then on the 6th of August, 1981, he signed That's into law. Birthday. Good to know. Sorry. That was um, the day we bombed Hiroshima. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Also interesting. Um, so on the 6th of August, 1981, he signed into law... National Security Decision Directive Number 7, which authorized the production and shipment of arms to Nicaragua, but did not specifically authorize their deployment, which I find interesting, because I don't think that ever got legally approved, like, in, in writing of any kind. Um, but this uh, this directive authorized... Or, or, excuse me, I already read that line. 
Um, on the 17th of November, 1981, uh, Reagan then signed in to law National Security Directive 17, which um, authorized covert support to anti-Sandinista for, uh, forces. Um, and that's pretty much the point at which the armed conflict in Nicaragua really started to pick up steam, um, which started to really destabilize the region. Um, as a result, uh, the FSLN kind of started pumping up their military activities as well, uh, including increasing military spending to the point at which more than half of the country's annual budget was going towards military spending in the war effort. Good Lord. Yeah. Imagine what that would look like here. That would be insane. (laughs) (laughs) So many trillions of dollars. Um, But with the CIA backing, the Contras were actually doing quite well with their efforts. Um, And by 1982, they actually started carrying out assassinations against uh, members of the Sandinista government. Only a year after our beginning of our support. Um, By 1983, the Contras had launched a major offensive effort, uh, including laying mines in many of Nicaragua's harbors, believe it or not. Um, like, like sea mines, like at the, at the bottom of the harbor. Um, the purpose, uh, purpose of that would be, um, basically to prevent, um, arms shipments from coming into the country. Cause all the Contra, uh, arms shipments were pretty much coming in the form of airdrops. Um, so they're just flying planes real low over and dropping boxes out of planes. Um, whereas the Nicaraguan government was getting, you know, ships coming into harbor, unloading, that kind of thing. So I also did read something that basically indicated that um, the mines that they put down really weren't designed to actually sink ships. They were pretty much just noisemakers, because uh, apparently in, in to, to most militaries, like military strategy pretty much dictates that once you figure out that a harbor has been mined, you just don't go there yeah. anymore. You stop. So um, I think pretty much they, you know, it was just kind of a thing for a facade, you know, where it's like, it's like like a barbed wire fence, basically. Exactly. It's just kind of like a, yeah, exactly. So um, the U.S. also kind of helped with that endeavor. Um, They placed a full trade embargo on Nicaragua around the same time as they started uh, putting mines in the harbors. So while many Americans uh, accepted or even supported the Reagan administration's efforts to assist the Contras, um, many, many other people in the United States were concerned by reports of some of the tactics that the Contras were using and crimes that they were committing uh, in their fight against the Sandinistas. So some of these tactics included terrorist attacks as well as many human rights violations. Uh, and these were not isolated incidents, I should note, but they were rather an integral component of the tactics that the Contras used in their fight. Um, the Reagan administration pub- like publicly attempted to downplay uh, some of the human rights uh, abuses and things like that that they were they were doing, um, but uh, privately they were encouraging the rebels to attack civilian targets, which uh, nice, yeah, great move. Always, a, always a uh, major winner in the public eye. Absolutely, civilians. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot of people describe what the Reagan administration did as uh, white propaganda, which is basically propaganda that doesn't claim to be anything else. Um, just like transparent propaganda, basically. Oh, you know, I hate to cheapen it, but is it kind of like that? 
that Simpsons gag, you know, what I'm talking about the super liminal messaging. <laughs> no, but I, that sounds like, that sounds pretty much like exactly what's going on. Yeah. Just like, you know, the, uh, Navy recruiter leans out a window and shouts oh, at Lenny, join the Navy. Oh yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much like that. But, um, my understanding of the situation is basically that the propaganda was not trying to so much say that this wasn't going on, but mm-hmm. rather to explain or attempt to be like, we're right. <laughs> we're like, doing this and we're right. This is going on, but it's, you know, for the greater good, basically. Yeah. It's kind of the, the argument. Um, so, uh, the reasoning behind many of the terrorist attacks carried out by the Contras, is basically due to the fact that, uh, a variety of the reforms that were put in place by the Sandinista government actually had were decently popular uh, with the Nicaraguan public. Um, so the Contras thought if they did the best to their best to interrupt these programs, um, they work. You know, they wouldn't work nearly as well, and people would stop liking them so much. Some of these attacks that the Contras were carrying out um, against civilians. Uh, included attacks on healthcare facilities and schools, which um, doesn't exactly look great in the public eye, which is part of the reason that the Reagan administration had tried mm-hmm. so hard to kind of whitewash the whole thing a little bit. Um, the Contras also committed many kidnappings, murders, rapes, extrajudicial killings, um, many of them being civilians, uh, and also uh, for- forced disappearances, which uh, seems to be a pretty common thing in Central and South America, at least during the latter half of the 20th century. Um, These activities were seen by the Contras as part of the low-intensity warfare that the Reagan Doctrine prescribed as uh, a way to kind of disrupt social structures and gain control over the population. As you might imagine, the opposition to the continued U.S. support of Contras grew, uh, grew over time as more of these uh, reports of abuses by the Contras made their way into the public eye in the United States. Which leads us to the Boland Amendment. Have you heard about the Boland Amendment, Kane? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, I, there were, I'm sorry, were there two? Were there two of them? There were two Boland Amendments. It was okay. kind of up- updated, because a lot of it's like basically stuff that's injected into the like House Appropriations Bill. Uh-huh. So they kind of yeah. had, had to keep, keep doing it year after year. Um. So, uh, the opposition to the U.S. support of the Contras resulted in a series of U.S. legislation, as, as we had mentioned. Um, <laughs> Oops. The public opposition to the support of the Contras uh, ended up resulting in a series of U.S. legislations, as we mentioned, the Poland Amendment, uh, which is intended to curb uh, CIA and other U.S. governmental assistance to the rebel group. Uh, so the first Boland Amendment was part of the House Appropriations Bill of 1982, which was attached as a rider to the Defense Appropriations Act of 1983, um, signed into law by Reagan in December of 82. The amendment, uh, which was named for the author, uh, Massachusetts Representative Edward Boland, um, outlawed U.S. assistance to the Contras for the, uh, for the purpose of overthrowing the Sandinista regime, but did still allow some other assistance to the group. Uh, and the amendment, as I mentioned before, was updated um, throughout the next several years, including the addition of the following excerpt. During the fiscal year 1985, 
no funds available to the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, or any other agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities may be obligated or expended for the purpose of or which may have the effect of supporting directly or indirectly military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, organization, group, movement, or individual. So pretty specific there about who was prohibited from doing this and for what purposes. So Reagan was not too happy about these restrictions that were being placed on his efforts to oust the Sandinistas. So, in violation of the Bull Amendment, senior officials of the Reagan administration continued to secretly arm and train the Contras and, as we'll talk about soon, provide arms to Iran, an operation that they dubbed the Enterprise, which is... I love the... Yeah, I loved how ominous that name was. Yeah, that sounds like some straight-out-of-conspiracy theory stuff. It's a little ridiculous, honestly, but... It's uh, not even... It's one of those things where if an idea like the Illuminati was called the Enterprise, it's it would be too ridiculous if it was outside of a movie. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not saying they are the Enterprise, but it's one of those names where it's almost too cheesy. Yeah. You I mean, know? have you... Um, it's you like something out of a Bond movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Or um, actually something very similar. I, um might have been called the organization or something like that, but the syndicate. <laughs> Isn't there something yeah. called the syndicate in? Yeah, whatever. Okay, let's let's take a a breather for a second because I want to talk to you about something that I wanted to talk about at the top of the episode, but I was too I wasn't even thinking about it. Before I get into this, we're going to take a quick jaunt outside of the Iran Contra affair to talk about uh, something timely. And something I thought was going to be conspiracy-related, so I hope you'll indulge me for a few moments, Greg. Sure thing. I am, if if we are to take the story as it has been presented to us as fact, I am incredibly disappointed with the outcome of this Nashville bombing thing. And it's going to sound bad, but I just wish for once it wasn't just some fucking loser. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I wish there was something a little more ideologically driven... Or, you know, because he did it, he, the guy did it right. I'll tell you that much. In, in terms of making sure nobody got hurt, mm-hmm. um, that's the way to do it if you're going to bomb anything, you know? Yeah. Um, but of course, it was just some whack job. Yep. Who, who, if I'm understanding correctly, there was kind of a, you know, anti 5G thing going on there. I mean, that's generally what's believed so far, is my understanding. He kind of wanted to take out that AT&T building that was parked next to. But When when we were talking about it, uh, you know, between you, Ryan, and I, you mentioned that there was something about he believed in aliens. And that seems like something that was intentionally added to cheapen it, because, like, I'm sure a lot of people do, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just something I had read in one of the articles I was reading about it, where, like, somebody had said something about, like, Believing aliens is is by no means a conspiratorial or crazy thing to believe. Like yeah. lots of lots of scientists believe, you know, or at least believe the possibility of aliens are out there. But sure, um, but even then, I bet you know there are probably a bunch of normal people who think maybe we've had contact. Yeah, that aren't you it's, know, crazy. Yeah, it's maybe you know if you think that there are aliens that are controlling the U.S. government, maybe that'd be a different story. But like you know, believing the existence of aliens is not something that you know should make you be labeled crazy. 
But yeah. yeah, no, it's it sounds like I mean I know that his girlfriend like reported him to the authorities saying he's say he he's making bombs in his trailer to go take his blood, <laughs> and his his attorney like tried to get the police to investigate too, but basically they just didn't have any legal grounds to go investigate. They couldn't get a I don't know if they tried to get a search warrant or not, but they just didn't take it seriously. It's it's probably hard if it's just like hearsay basically that you're making bombs yeah you know Uh, i'm sure they would need some sort of like evidence of purchasing of materials or something to get the warrant but and they like apparently local police there like you know reached out to the fbi didn't have any records on him they didn't really have anything they could go on but we're just really lucky that he you know didn't want to kill people because yeah seemed like he not only I wouldn't even call it slipping through the cracks. People try to report him, you know, mm-hmm. but my, I guess in my hope, now that I'm remembering that people listening to this have not had the conversation that you and I had, uh, Greg, mm-hmm. there was, um, there was the possibility that, and I don't want to get too into this because we might even talk about this on an episode, but there is, there's something called room six, two, one, a, is that, is that the number? I believe so. I haven't read much about this. You definitely know more about it than me, but it's basically a place where a whole bunch of like main trunk internet lines go through a certain building in New York yeah. City. Sorry, six four one a six four one. There we go. It's in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And it's the main AT and T hub where the NSA taps into things. Yeah. But declassified documents from like 2014 showed that there were actually multiple of them. Mm-hmm. And so there was there was kind of thought that maybe this Nashville AT&T thing was one of those hubs. Yeah. And that this might have been one of those, like, you know, somebody who's trying to affect that, basically, or send a yeah. message, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, but of course. Five, 5G. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so that's enough of that. Yeah. Let's talk about Iran. Sure. And... What's going? What's you know? It was quite the pressure cooker in Iran. Not that that really has any bearing on the situation, but it just so mm-hmm. happens that uh, things were getting a little steamy over there in Iran because the Iranian Revolution was happening. And I'm sure if any of you listening used to browse or continue to browse Reddit, I feel like there was a period of time where it was like once every three months, I would see a picture on r slash old school cool or something of what. Tehran looked like before the Iranian Revolution. Yeah, like, it, yeah, it it was cosmopolitan as could yeah. be. Looked yeah, like, it was like looked like London in a lot of ways. Basically, you know? yeah. And so, the Shah of Iran—that's you know—that's the leader, the the king, king at king, the time. Yeah. yeah, Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi was was the the last Shah, and so he is pretty much just known as the, Shah. as the Shah. Yeah. And that was a, um, you know, however tenuous the ties are, he was the last in the Persian dynasty, you know, uh, Persian-like rule of kings, basically. It was like 1,500 years or something crazy like that? Yes, it was. um, It started with the establishment of the Median Empire by Medes in 705 B.C., until the deposition of the Pahlavi dynasty in 1979 was one concurrent line of kings. That's crazy to think about. And, um, of course, what ended up happening is there was a lot of support for 
a name I'm sure you've heard at some point, uh, the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Rahala Khomeini, who was, his big thing was a pan-Islamic state. That was the big thing he was going for. In 1979, he gets put into power in December 1979 as the head of the new Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, sorry, Greg, do you think we should talk? Should I, like, get a little more about... No, it's really not that important, right? The, Just the revelation? Yeah, the actual intricacies um, of that. No, I don't think we need to go too depth in it, but I think it is important to note one of the most interesting things is that, like, most revolutions happen when, you know, there's some sort of economic crisis going on or some sort of right. external factor pressing on the country for change to happen, you know? And, and this that's was why almost the opposite. Yeah, pretty unique. They were, like, a relatively prosperous place, and even more so, like, the opposite of this happening would be more likely where, like... um a country that has like, you know, super repressive, uh, views on like, you know, personal liberties and things like that. And like religious freedom, usually the opposite would be going on where like people would want to open things up, but this was like overthrowing a government government to shut things down and make things more mm-hmm. religiously rep- repressed, which is a rarity worldwide. Certainly. And I, I said he he got put into power December of nineteen seventy nine. That was that was when he was officially put in charge. Okay. But you know things have been people have been supporting him for a while. Yeah. And in November of that same year, nineteen seventy nine, we had a little something called the Iranian hostage crisis. And what's going on there is there was a group of students who some thought it was going to be a peaceful protest, some. There's like differing accounts. Some people have mm-hmm. said that they went in there with the intent of taking hostages. Some people just wanted to like scare the embassy. Some people just thought it was going to be a peaceful protest. But what ended up happening was a group of several hundred students in Tehran, uh, people, you know, late teens, early 20s, college students, armed themselves and stormed the embassy. And uh, what ended up happening was 65 Americans were taken hostage in the embassy. And, um, you know, they're, they're all kind of supporting Khomeini. And Khomeini was very anti-American. And it was kind of the perfect time for that because, like you said, you know, there was the stagflation. Uh, Carter had some misses. And we're also just, it's important to remember, we're just a few years off losing the Vietnam War. Correct. Which was kind of an embarrassment on the national stage, I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, big time. And so they've got these hostages. Ultimately... I think 444 days. Correct. They were held. And Carter tried a lot of concessions through back channels to try to get them out. And, you know, it seemed like it was working and working and working. Carter was giving and giving and giving. But eventually even Khomeini himself stepped in and was like, no, not, you know, we're not, we're not getting them out. So they decide to, they being, you know, Carter and the, you know, tip top of the American government, they decide to say A-OK to a special forces operation mission that failed spectacularly. And it wasn't so much that they lost, like it wasn't like a battle and they lost the battle. There were a lot of technical gremlins, basically. It was kind of poorly planned and poorly executed. And a lot of that problem was with the helicopters. Because it was uh, was a helicopter in, helicopter out, exfiltration type mission. Mm -hmm. But they ended up having to like juggle around fuel. They had to stop mid-mission to 
take fuel from one helicopter to give to another. And they had, you know, fuel tankers. One of the helicopters actually struck one of the tankers with its rotor. Oh, no. And uh, that's where eight people died. That's the deaths that you were mentioning previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mission was just scrapped, and they evacuated the forward operations base they had. And that failure, basically, the U.S. had to concede on a lot of points they had already made, and uh, they had to unfreeze some assets that they had frozen, and the hostages were moved out of the embassy, so it was kind of like, well, now we just don't know where they are. Yeah. And another mission of that type would be impossible. And again, this is coming in 1979, so towards the end of uh, the Carter administration. Yes, and this is, it is a result of this where uh, Carter places an embargo on the sailor trade of arms with Iran. Mm-hmm. And, but, and funnily enough, you know, prior to this, the U.S. was where Iran got most of their weapons, yep. parts for their weapons. So it was kind of a big hit. <clears throat> However, um, I know that, like, the U.S. kind of tried to rally up other countries to do the same, to end arms sales to Iran, and uh, had limited success doing so. Even with the Khomeini government, the, um, the Iranians were also embroiled in a war with Iraq. And as I'm sure you can guess, the heart of this war, as with most disputes in the Middle East, was a border dispute largely. Because, you know, there was hundreds of incidents that both countries considered, uh, you know, what would you call that? Um, Invasions. Yeah, like, in a sense, like violations of what they took as their borders. Border incursions, I believe is the word. Okay, yes, that's a good one. And tensions were also high between the two because Khomeini was saying, like, you know, we're going to take this this Islamic government and we want it to be a pan-Islamic. Like, we're going we're gonna to go, go everywhere where Islam rules. Mm-hmm. And he specifically encouraged the people of Iraq to overthrow their Ba'athist government, mm-hmm. which is a similar kind of thing, but instead of being... they wa- Instead of wanting a unified Islamic government, they wanted a unified Arab government. And so, you know, the Iraqis didn't like that, obviously, those in in power. And so they took that opportunity to maybe try to weaken the Khomeini and his Islamic ideas. And they also wanted to take that opportunity to maybe become the big power in the Middle East because prior to that, Iran was, because of how close it was to Israel and the United States, it was just a very, you know, uh, economically powerful and involved in the world community, much more so than some of the poorer Middle Eastern nations. Mm-hmm. And so, amidst an armed conflict, R- Iran found themselves in needs of weapons and parts for weapons, I'm sure you can imagine. Now, this is, if we jump back to the U.S. a little bit, because this embargo's going on, and so in 1981, there is a group called the Senior Interdepartmental Group. And this is what I had to, I was telling you, Greg, I had to, kind of look through an actual scanned-in PDF on the CIA website mm-hmm. because I was trying to figure out what that was and who was in that meeting. But they had a meeting, and the consensus of that meeting was that the embargo was pretty ineffective because, like you said, you know, a, a bunch of other Western nations weren't really willing to capitulate on and, the embargo. And also 
the other big player. Yes, because if we if we continue to embargo them, that could push Iran to go to the Soviets for help, mm-hmm. which we decided was a big enough no-no that maybe we should, even though we don't want to just turn around and cancel the embargo and look like idiots, maybe we need to give them some weapons. And so, you know, not that it's really important, but I did find out who was in this, the senior interdepartmental group. Mm-hmm. You can kind of guess based on the name, but everybody who was in this meeting was the vice president, the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the secretary of agriculture, weird, secretary of commerce, the attorney general, the head of the office of management and budget, the council, the head of the council of economic advisors, the director of the CIA, and the director of the office of policy development. Big list of list of big players. Yeah, that's that's everybody you want, right? Besides yeah. the president, I guess. Yeah. But um, now, despite um, thinking they should give Iran weapons, they definitely still saw Khomeini as a threat, not only to just you know, the Western kind of foothold in the Middle East, but it would continue because he wanted to carry the revolution onto Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and basically all of the other Gulf states. Mm-hmm. So to kind of double down on the embargo in the, you know, kind of razor thin public a sense of doubling down on it, they launched something called Operation Staunch. Which I think is a really funny name for Operation. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and Operation Staunch was just kind of they sent they sent a special envoy in Richard Fairbanks. And he spoke with diplomats, intelligence officers, and arms industry officials in Arab countries, as well as South Korea, Italy, Spain, and Portugal. And the whole intent was to try to say, maybe don't sell to these guys. And that was all under the guise of trying to stop Hezbollah, which was that, you know, the group that's kind of, they was sponsored by the Iranian Iranian government, Mm -hmm. basically state-sponsored terrorists. And it is right around this time, chronologically, where what Greg had talked about earlier starts really kicking off, I believe. The Contra. The, con- the Contra, th- yeah. Yeah. We're, all of this is right around the same time, because the, the whole Contra stuff starts happening, like, literally in, I mean, the Nicaraguan Revolution was in 1979, as well as the Iranian Revolution. They occurred in the same year. So a lot of overlap time-wise with a lot of what we've been talking about. So investigations a little bit down the road, kind of showed that 1981, this is right after the launch of Staunch, is when the arms sales technically started moving around. And I'll get into this a little more, but it's it's through the using Israel as an avenue, basically, to do this. Yep. And it's around this time that these arms shipments actually started because, you know, the U.S. wanted money. And Israel, not only just being an ally of the U.S., they also wanted to kind of keep the Iran-Iraq war going to keep those two occupied with each other. And, yeah. you know, um, the... Keep, the keep, keep their efforts off of Israel, basically. The, the Israeli government is not very popular with the rest of the Middle East. <laughs> Understatement put of the lightly. century, yeah. So anything they can do to get some heat off their backs, they're going for it. Yeah, and also, I mean, in 1979, like... 
the strength of um, Israel had really picked up, but they still weren't nearly as much of a superpower as they are like today, you know, in the, in the region. So, mm. I mean, Israel is pretty much constantly embroiled in conflict, but like back in like the seventies, it was a lot more like they, they had a lot more wars back then than they have recently. Now it's basically just, you know, uh, the Israeli Palestinian conflict, but they had numerous wars throughout the seventies, my understanding. And there was like the, Seven Days War or whatever. Yeah. Yunk or War. Anyway, various military conflicts, and they're just like, I think they were trying to basically keep themselves from getting embroiled in too many conflicts going Mm -hmm. into the 80s. They're just like, keep it away. So let's see what we got. We got, we don't want Iran to go to um, the Soviets. Mm -hmm. We stand to gain a little bit of money here. And on top of that, there's still those hostages. And despite being dissuaded out of certain things or, you know, attempted to be dissuaded, Reagan had a lot of hangups on if he missed a chance to get the hostages. And they had some back-channel communications with... They had some back-channel communications with the Iranians through Israel because a consultant for the National Security Advisor, a guy by the name of Michael Layden, reached out to somebody he had already had fairly close ties with, the Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Perez. And it was through them that they kind of figured out that Hezbollah might be willing to release the hostages if the U.S. gave them the weapons they wanted. Mm-hmm. And the Americans believed that this guy, I love this guy's name and nickname, okay. a gentleman by the name of Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, who was called okay. the Shark. Ooh. He was somebody who was in Khomeini's movement, but was a little less of a uh, fire and brimstone kind of guy. Gotcha. And believed to be a potential successor to Khomeini. And the U.S. believed that he was a man with enough influence to release the hostages. And he, you know, he was also a little softer on the government, the U.S. government, than Khomeini was. And Reagan painted the picture kind of that through Ross Funjani, he was selling weapons to a group of moderates. This is how he kind of pitched it to his council and all that. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Walsh Commission later showed that he was pretty much selling directly to Khomeini. Yeah. So not wanting to miss an opportunity to get out the hostages, Reagan was, I think, I can't, the d- direct quote was something like, big, strong Reagan... He's talking about himself in the third person. Like, you'd, you'd feel like an idiot if big, strong Reagan refused or missed an opportunity to release hostages. Yeah, that's, I remember hearing that quote. So there's this Iranian arms dealer named Manucher, I'm guessing, Manucher Gorbanifar, and they were going to kind of sell through him. But leading up to this, there were a lot of people in Reagan's administration, including the Secretary of State George Shultz and Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger, who were like, dude, that's illegal. We embargoed them like last year, basically. And Public, um, publicly and publicly. called for other countries to do it. Yeah. And just selling them through Israel, because the plan was Israel, quote unquote, was going to sell them arms, and then we were just mm-hmm. going to reimburse Resu- Israel. Or resupply them. Or yeah, whatever. resupply, sorry. And, um, you know, just taking it out one degree of separation from the embargo does not make it legal. (laughs) 
but you know, whatever. And so how this was going to work was there was that first arms sale. And what surprised me was I was expecting a more broad sense of arms sales, but it's, it's, there's obviously a little bit more, but it's pretty much one thing that we gave them a lot of. It was like missile systems or something? Yeah, it was, t- it was tow missiles. Okay. And so the very first one in 1981, that was just kind of like a test, I guess, to see if the channels would actually work. In 1981, the date is not clear. We gave around 96 tow missiles. It wasn't until 1985, the latter half of the year, that the sales really started kicking off. And what happened was on the 20th of August, 1985, we gave them an additional 86 tow missiles. These are anti-tank missiles. Mm -hmm. And it was on that sale that a gentleman by the name of Reverend Benjamin Weir was released. He was the first of the hostages released by the Mm -hmm. Islamic Jihad organization. And what was going to happen was every time we gave them weapons, Israel was going to airdrop it to them. And every time there was an airdrop, they were going to release a hostage. So I don't even know if it's important to list the dates, but I'm just going to go right down the list of the, the, the sales. And this is ranging from the 20th of August, obviously, to the 28th of October of 86. Okay. And so that first one was 86 tow missiles. In the 14th of September, 408 more tow missiles. My birthday. Hey, whoa. Nice. 24th of November, 18 Hawk anti-aircraft missiles. Mm-hmm. In, the, in February of 86, a total of 1,000 tow missiles. 24th of May, 1986, 508 tows, 240 Hawk spare parts. 4th of August, 1986, more Hawk spares. And the 28th of October, 500 more tow missiles. And that's T-O-W, all caps. Yep. It's an acronym. Yep, they're wire-guided. Really? Yep. So basically the rocket fires, the wire is still connected to the rocket when it goes out, so you can basically steer the rocket while it's in midair. Impressive. They're very cool. They were pretty high-tech back then. Yeah. So is that a less advanced version of, like, the um, Javelin? Yeah. Basically, like, now that we have modern, like, wireless networking and things like that, basically there's ways to control missiles. There's no need for the wire anymore now that we're wireless? Radio radio control, essentially. Okay. Um, Is how a lot of newer ones work. But uh, back then they didn't. I I think the issue is mainly, like, miniaturization because... We obviously had stuff like, uh, you know, ICBMs that we could, you know, steer the individual MERV, like reentry warheads. Uh, we could steer those towards direct, like, individual targets. But those are obviously quite a bit larger than, you know, say, a, a missile that you're shooting off the back of, you know, a tank or a truck or something. Uh-huh. <clears throat> now, there's there's one name I've been a little hesitant to mention. Okay. And it's the National Security Advisor, Robert McFarlane. Mm-hmm. And... He had been pretty against this with, you know, uh, the Secretary of State and Defense. He was also, he was he was one of the main three, basically, that were trying to tell Reagan he can't do this. Mm-hmm. And he was against it the whole way through. And before any of the sales, I th- and by that I mean the ones in 85, mm-hmm. before those, he tried to himself go to Israel and try to get um, channels with, with Iran to just see if, just like, hey, can we just let the hostages go? We can, you know, put this whole thing behind us. Of course, it didn't work. Yeah. I'm sorry. He actually went to London to do this. But, okay. re- you know, regardless. 
in the midst of these sales, he decides to step down from his post. And it is once he resigns, and I'm not going to claim that it's because he resigned, but on the day of his resignation, somebody comes to the interim national security advisor with a little idea of his. And this is a gentleman by the name of Colonel Oliver North. So, Greg, what do you think that idea was? Let's, uh, let's not only sell all these uh, missiles and stuff to Iran, but now that we can't fund the Contras anymore, ostensibly. Right. You know, publicly let's, or, you know, on yeah. the record, we can't. Basically, we got two situations where we can't do anything publicly or on the record. Why not to, as I mentioned before, kill two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. Basically, sell these, sell these weapons illegally, take the proceeds, send it to the Contras. If you don't get caught, it's a great idea. If you do get caught, it's it national embarrassment. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so. And that's precisely what ends up happening. Yeah. But they don't get caught immediately. So. Uh, correct. Now. Do you have much more on the whole missile shipment stuff? Or do you, no. do you want me to start diving into my yeah. last, last remarks here? So um, basically. Um, in on the 3rd of November. 1986, um, there's a leak from a man by the name of uh, Mehdi, M-E-H-D-I, Hashemi, who is a senior official at the, or in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Um, He leaks this information to the Lebanese magazine Ashirah, yeah, uh, which exposed this whole... um, you know, sell weapons and then move the money back to the Contras arrangement. Um, again, that was on the 3rd of November, 1986. So this was the first public report of the deal with Iran, uh, which pretty much led to the Europe, blew the top off this whole scandal. Um, so the, uh, there's actually, I found a little footnote in a couple of the articles I was reading. Um, there is actually some speculation that this leak actually may have been orchestrated by a covert team led by Arthur S. Moreau Jr., who was the assistant to the chairman of the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, basically fearing that the whole situation, the whole scheme, had grown out of control, largely just due to the scope of like the numbers of missiles being shipped. And oh, so you're saying he was kind of a whistleblower, like he was? Yeah, he was trying well, to be like kind eh. of basically, like, yeah, let's let's leak some information out there, get it in yeah. public eye, and then find out what happens. But I don't think that's ever been conclusively proven. So, just okay. something interesting I saw that was in one of those articles. Uh, the operation was only discovered um, after an airlift of guns crash landed in Nicaragua, which was Corporate Air Services Flight HPF 821. Which, who do you think operated that airline? Uh, well, uh, if you listen to the last episode, I'm going to guess the CIA. Uh, you'd be correct. Corporate Air Services. I didn't look too deep into it, but it's a CIA front airline. So. After the crash, a former U.S. Marine named Eugene uh, Hassenfuss was arrested by Nicaraguan authorities, uh, and he was the sole survivor of this plane crash. Um, obviously, the plane was full of guns going towards the Contras, which um, the Sandinista government was none too fond of. And in, in his initial interview with Nicaraguan authorities, he alleged that two of his co-workers worked for the CIA, he named, and he named them by name. 
Uh, but he later walked back that statement when talking to the press down the line. Um, the scandal was further compounded when, again, Oliver North uh, destroyed or hid pertinent documents to this whole situation between the 21st and 25th of November 1986. Uh, his secretary, uh, I forget her name, uh, it was in a couple of the articles I was reading, but she would later go on to testify that not only he, but she also assisted in doing this, basically Fawn in an attempt. is her name. Fawn Hall? Yeah, Fawn that Hall. sounds right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did this in an attempt, at least ostensibly, to protect the lives of individuals involved with the whole operation. Basically, they didn't, they didn't want people in the CIA getting targeted by the Nicaraguan government or something like that, you know. So yeah. that, was their, that was their reasoning. But really, it was obviously just to cover up the tracks. They shredded enough paperwork that it broke an industrial shredder. I feel like that's probably not that difficult because I've broken home shredders before. Sure. But have you seen an industrial shredder? Uh, I don't know how big the ones they had were, but like the one in my office, even that one gets kind of slow sometimes, but I just feel like, I mean, they were just shredding as fast as they can. They probably just jammed too much stuff in there at once. Yeah. And also in a lot of cases, government documents famously long. So yes. Yeah. Probably just started getting a little too greedy with their pace there, but I mean, it still took them four days. That's, that's a long time, but um, yeah, she would later testify about shredding, altering, and removing official National Security Council documents. Um, Oliver North would later go on to testify, or uh, yeah, I was explaining that, basically his reasoning behind it was to protect lives. But, well, let's start getting into the Tower Commission, Kane. So, in 1986, um, Reagan created a special review board, uh, it was later dubbed the Tower Commission after the guy that was chosen to head it, I forget his first name, but his last name was Tower. Um, and the main objectives of the commission were to inquire into the, quote, circumstances surrounding the Iran-Contra matter, other case studies that might reveal strengths and weaknesses of the operation in the national, of the National Security Council system under stress, and the manner in which that system has served eight different presidents since its inception in 1947, end quote. Uh, additionally, Congress opened its own investigation into the matter in 1987. Um, some painted this as kind of like a you know, way to take down Reagan, you know, for something. But that was mainly just you know, people on the right trying to discredit the whole investigation. But uh, again, I, I, I mentioned this earlier in the episode. I didn't do a ton of research as far as like the actual um, meat and potatoes of the investigation goes. Do you have more on it? Um, or should we just start getting into basically who ended up getting in trouble for all of this? There's a lot of minutia about the whole, you know, like there was public statements by Ronald Reagan. There was like the the trials that were you know f- put in national television, um, hmm. like played extensively. Like this is what really sticks in the brains of a lot of the people that you know remember this. People that were alive at the time, they mostly just remember the, these congressional investigations on TV. I, I, yeah, and like to be fair, the only thing I knew about Iran Contra before reading about this was that I've seen that picture of the deposition of Ollie North. Yeah. You know, that fam- I think he's like pointing at you yeah. know, whatever, at uh, whoever the congressional bastard oh. was that was. Um, Dare interview him. Yeah. Who <laughs> would Dane? Yeah, okay. Um, I also remember um, I've heard stories just like a lot of, I mean, Oliver North was a handsome dude at the time. Sure. And uh, I just remember a lot of people being like, girls fawning over military man in uniform just being up there all, all confident like he's a 
Interesting. I just remember hearing commentary on that. It's kind of funny. Um, no, I guess I don't have much about the meat and potatoes because it's kind of boring. It is boring, and it, it seemed like kind of a I don't want to say a farce, but like the main I think the main question was like, how much did Reagan actually have involvement in this? The answer is a lot, but a how lot. much could they how much could they prove? Like, did they yes. prove that he knew about it, you know? And did Reagan go to prison? No. No. That's that's that the yeah, I think the general consensus of the report was that officially uh Reagan didn't know or at least, you know, he you know, he didn't have in explicit involvement in this contra thing. Yeah. with the with the funds. But it was also to be fair, the commission did have kind of a searing indictment of him that if he wasn't aware that was also kind of a failure on his part for not yeah, really. Yeah, because he you know, should have known. Yeah, this exactly. Stuff that was basically going on right under his nose. And if he didn't know about it, he was screwing up. Yeah, it's kind of a damned if you did and damned if you didn't. Yeah, more like good in prison if, if you, you did. Did damned <laughs> if you didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is what's pretty much what ends up happening. So, so thirteen individuals, wasn't it? Got indicted. Something yes. like that. And I actually, I to be fair, like I have a literal picture of the, of the list. Mm-hmm. I, I trimmed it because I really just wanted to include like the major ones that got indicted. Yeah. So the major ones that were indicted were Casper Weinberger, secretary yep. of defense, indicted on two counts of perjury and one count of obstruction of justice. Robert C. McFarlane, the, the guy who left, funnily yep. enough, but again, withholding evidence, uh, after a plea bargain was given only two years of probation. Elliot Abrams, the assistant secretary of state, withholding evidence, plea bargain, two years, probation. Mm-hmm. Alan D. Fears, chief of CIA's Central American Task Force, withholding, withholding evidence, one year of probation. Claire George, chief of, man, by the way, Claire George, chief of covert ops CIA, convicted on two charges of perjury, and Oliver North. And his secretary, Fawn Hall. Oliver now, North was indicted on 16 charges. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> so if that gives you an idea of how much involvement he had, quite a lot. Now, uh, everybody I've just mentioned besides um, Fawn Hall and Oliver North were later pardoned by George H.W. Bush. Correct. his lame duck face. Yep. And some of those people had not even reached trial by the time he, because like Casper Weinberger, uh, his his counts of uh, you know obstruction of justice perjury came on the sixteenth of June, nineteen ninety two, well mm-hmm. after this, you know, slow moving thing. But yeah, it was the twenty fourth of December, nineteen ninety two, when all of these pardons were handed out, I believe. Yep. So, did anybody serve prison time, Kane? I know the answer to this, so I'll just go ahead and take okay. it. Um, the, only, the only person who was indicted that actually ended up serving prison time was a man by the name of Thomas G. Kleins, who's a former CIA officer um, who was involved in the Enterprise, uh, and he ended up earning nearly 800000 U.S. dollars um, throughout his involvement, because uh, he was involved... Now, that was... Basically, he got charged with concealing the full amount of his profits from the Enterprise, between 1985 and 1986 um, and was convicted and served 16 months in prison. 
again, the only one to serve any kind of prison time for their involvement in the scandal, which I think is pretty, pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Considering how highly illegal it was. And it's not surprising considering the pardons, because the people that really would have gone to prison are the people that got pardoned, and he can't really get, can't really get around a pardon. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> basically the highest order of, <laughs> of decree. Yeah. Pardoned by the president. Yep. Now, just, I want to mention something about Ollie North. Mm-hmm. Because they, he tried to get somebody else involved in this situation to clean up the Sandinista mess. So this is, I'm not talking about the whole, not trying to skirt out of the legal troubles. Yeah. But... And I, I think the reason, part of the reason this stuck out to me so much was I was not expecting to see um, something that happened in August 23rd, 1986, mm-hmm. reference an email. I think that oh, wow. kind of surprised me. Interesting. But um, Ollie North emailed the National Security Advisor at the time, the one who took over from McFarlane, mm-hmm. the unfortunately named John Poindexter. And he, he said to Poindexter, I've got this friend in Panama, <laughs> somebody <laughs> I've developed quite a relationship with, General Manuel Noriega. And he had correspondence with Noriega, and they had agreed, Oliver North and Manuel Noriega, that if the U.S. was willing to, quote, help clean up his image, Noriega would, quote, take care of the Sandinista leadership. So <laughs> didn't, didn't end up panning out, but some choice words there. Yeah. And so Greg, I gotta be honest, I feel embarrassed for throwing back to you because I, I guess I thought maybe you would have some sort of like wrap up on what ended up happening with the Sandinistas. Do you know? I actually don't. Um, I mean, I know that, a lot of the turmoil that happened then and the, like, the lack of respect for um, whatever government they've had there has kind of lasted, and that's why part of the reason the, co- the country is still pretty dangerous to this day. But, um, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of closure on that. Um, but honestly, that's really kind of off the topic of our of what we're kind of covering it here really anyway. it really is and that's it would be it would be good if we had known that but uh if we, we but like it's just i got so embroiled in reading about so much other stuff there's so much to read about with this whole scandal exactly there's a lot of it's really well documented and um and like we talked about that nobody else will hear like we could have theoretically gone a lot more into what's going on with the iranian revolution but yeah that's a that's a whole topic in and of itself we're but, already at over an hour and yeah we've basically just, we've really seriously only covered the broad strokes of this whole thing. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of little details that you can go and read about if you want. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of information out there about the Contras. There's tons of information about the Iranian revolution. That's a whole can of worms that just gets tied up in uh, middle Eastern politics too. Cause mm-hmm. our ge- geopolitics in general there. But, um, yeah, I, I, I figured I'd try and keep my, keep my blinders on to some degree and, you know, keep focused on the topic at hand here. And I think that it's appropriate that, I mean, the end of this episode is pretty much just fizzling out, but that's pretty much what happened with this yeah. whole affair. Yeah. And I think this is why there's no, call, there's no big closure, you know, they called, they called Reagan the Teflon president for, for this reason. I mean, not this yeah. reason, but like for this reason included, 
because mm-hmm. I will say one thing. Um, I don't know if this changed with some more recent presidents, but at the time, as a result of this, Reagan suffered the largest single drop for any U.S. president in history in approval rating. Yeah. Because in November of 1986 alone, his approval rating dropped from 67 to 46. Man. But he bounced back pretty shortly afterwards. Yeah. And I think part of that may have just been like, you know, he was, like you said, loved by the conservatives, which Mm -hmm. wasn't exactly a minority in the 80s. No. And uh, he was an actor, charismatic guy, handsome, good at talking, which matters a lot when you're president. Absolutely. Famously quick-witted. Like, I remember, um, so he got shot during his presidency. Um, I forget what year that was in. Yeah, by Jodie Foster. Can you believe that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For any of our listeners who don't know what's going on there, he he got shot by somebody who wanted Jodie Foster to love him, right? Yeah, I think he saw Jodie Foster as a teenage prostitute in Taxi Driver, I think, and wanted to impress her. And decided to shoot the president in kind of a, you know, the character from Taxi Driver kind of move. Yeah. Wild. But um, something I, I just always sticks out to me when I think about Reagan is there's footage of, um, he was at some sort of event, uh, maybe like six months after he got shot. Because he lived, obviously, um, through that shooting. Um, and, uh, like, he's up on stage talking. And a balloon pops while he's talking. And without skipping a beat, immediately just off the top of his head, he's just like, missed me, and then went back to talking. <laughs> it's so good. If you haven't seen that clip, go look it up, because it's like, I I can't even imagine, like, like I, I'm not the world's quickest witted person. I'm not the world's slowest witted person, but that's just incredible. It, well, it, was, to, it was without skipping a beat, literally, to, immediately. To also be able to do that in front of a crowd of people is a lot different yeah. than... You know, and shortly after you were just shot, like a lot yeah. of people, like, oh, you know, <laughs> but no, just didn't skip a beat. You know, cool as a cucumber, just snap, snap right back at it. Not super related, but that made me think of: Have you seen how active the guy who threw a shoe at George Bush is on Twitter? Oh yeah. If you like, if you tag him in a tweet and be like, "What's up, dude? Thanks for doing that," he'd be like, "Yeah, man, thanks for the shout out." <laughs> <laughs> it's goofy. I mean. I think he served a very short sentence or something like that, but I mean, throwing a shoe isn't really that illegal. It's just happened to be at the U S president. If I could, if I could dare to quote Austin powers, (laughs) (laughs) who throws a shoe, (laughs) but yeah, honestly, yeah. Um, how that really, yeah. Which, you know, I was funnily enough. I have, um, there's a great service called Pluto TV. If you have like mm-hmm. a smart TV or a Roku, you've probably yeah. stumbled upon it. It's honestly kind of fantastic just for what it is. And they have a they have a channel on there that is 24-7 James Bond movies. It is just oh, nonstop. Awesome. They just loop through them. And I just happened to watch like the last half of Goldfinger. Okay. And I just started thinking about like who, well, surely Ian Fleming is to blame for writing this book, but odd job throws a sharpened hat what is yep. what a stupid character idea it is a little bit weird uh but uh i know that you could play as odd job in a handful of the 007 games which i played extensively as a child yeah i remember loving playing as him because you got you got to use that weapon and it was a one-hit kill yeah 
It's pretty sweet. Okay, but, now, uh, like I said, we really only covered the broad strokes, and it, it is, for a podcast spinoff that is supposed to be about conspiracy theories, I think we've been a little light on the conspiracy side. Yeah. And uh, we actually, this topic actually came up the day of recording earlier. So maybe it's maybe it's time I go mask off and uh, peel back the tinfoil curtain a little bit. Um, I was, I am so afraid of people's opinion. And so I did not want to delve into something too conspiratorial, especially at a time that is so close to a very politically contentious election. Yeah. Now that we're getting a little bit of distance, I think we're safe to kind of dive into some other topics. Yeah. And so I think we can get into a little bit of the grittier side of CIA things and also, you know, I don't want this to be a podcast about the CIA. So yeah, um, there will be a lot of other stuff, but the message of what I'm trying to say here is I think we're going to get a little more into the the meat of conspiracy type stuff in, in yeah. subsequent episodes now. I'd also like to talk about some like Russian conspiracy stuff. It's like, Stuff like uh, like the like the Moscow apartment bombings, that'd be something fun to cover. So maybe we'll maybe we'll do that in the future. You know, I don't I don't know if it's a conspiracy, but like I I know I know one sentence about something in Russia, and didn't they like did they not gas an entire movie theater or something of people? It was uh, not a movie theater. It was an actual theater theater. Oh okay. Um yeah, that was the um, that was also in Moscow. Um, it was basically they wanted to kill the terrorists that were in there because it was Chechen terrorists that had uh, taken a bunch of hostages. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Chechens are usually the source of most domestic terrorism inside of Russia. Is Chechnya is, I mean, Chechens are it, it is radical radical Muslims that. They, well, Greg, to, let's let's be well, real here. They're the not, ultimate villain. They tick all the boxes. Yeah, white, usually male, Russian. Islam. That's yep. like the big four <laughs> of, of evil dudes. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just like they, they do definitely fit the picture and also are not. I mean, their other main huge hostage crisis that, that they did was in a, like a literal elementary school. That sounds be- that very bad. <clears throat> Beslan schools, the Beslan school siege. And also another Certainly one not winning big, hearts and minds with that one. No. And uh, another big, um, just uh tactic of theirs that's actually i love learning about like russian military equipment and um f- like learning about their flak suits that they wear basically like a lot of uh spetsnaz um like operators will wear basically like suits that are completely completely cover like every inch of their body in in armor but it's only like soft kevlar armor and a big part of why they do that is because like once they when they do raids on Chechen terrorists' houses and things like that, a lot of times they'll rig explosives with a whole bunch of shrapnel to try and uh, kill the okay. to try and kill the Spetsnaz people. And so, like a lot of their threats aren't coming from actual direct gunfire, but rather like shrapnel type stuff. And it's really interesting seeing cause like some of this armor is like like a like an coverall suit, like weighs like thirty five or forty pounds. So you're running around Ooh. with a ton of ton of gear on. Yeah. But uh, very now, interesting. Quick question: Is Kevlar best suited for? Uh, like bullet impacts or is it pretty much a general, I guess in a roundabout way, I'm asking like how effective is Kevlar against stabbings? Um, so I think Kevlar is large. So like you'll see in Britain, you'll see police wearing vests 
Yeah. Those aren't bolt. Those aren't bulletproof vests. Those are stab vests. Right. Um, are I those think, Kevlar though? I think so. Okay. Um, but, um, is it, is Kevlar fibrous? Is it yeah, strands it's, it's and a, stuff? It's a, it's a woven fabric. Okay. Um, but, uh, there's various materials you can use for armor. Most modern armor, um, like bulletproof armor is not Kevlar because Kevlar is really only effective against like pistol rounds. Um, okay. and even that, even then armor, armor piercing pistol, like rounds have been developed, usually specialty calibers like the Ruger five set or well, not really, <laughs> excuse me, the FN five seven. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ruger. Well, I just Ruger recently put out their own. Okay. Five seven. Cause no, basically the, up until recently, the only two guns of, that would shoot 5.7 millimeter ammunition or the P90 and the FN57, right. which were intended to be a, sort of a, you know, you use the both, so you only have to have one type of ammunition for both of them. But um, those were specifically designed for, like, anti-terrorism missions, because a lot of times terrorists are either not wearing armor or only wearing soft armor, because mm-hmm. hard armor is very expensive. Well, was at least, isn't now. Um, but yeah, a lot of hard armor these days, like, designed to stop, like, rifle rounds, it's ceramic. Uh-huh. Yeah, my understanding of uh, terrorists, and it's it's a pretty good understanding. It seems like they always wear uh, camo pants, a blue button-up shirt, and a black balaclava. Terrorists win. <laughs> always, every single one. No, but, um, I mean, a lot of terrorist forces in, like, the Middle East basically just don't have access to armor because it's expensive, hard to find, that type of thing. Money better gun- spent on guns and bombs, probably, than... Yeah, um... And also, uh, a lot of countries have strict controls on armor. Uh-huh. Um, okay, hold but, on. Uh, okay, hold on. I'm sorry. <laughs> we could continue talking about this for a while. Maybe it's best if yeah. we uh, stop the episode. We've already done the 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 wrap-up, basically. So <laughs> thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. And um, I, I, mean, I think there will be another... I think we'll probably get the Carnegie one done before another one of these tinfoil, but I, I'm also chomping at the bit to do another tinfoil, to be yeah. honest. I'm definitely enjoying these, um, and I think the best part about doing this is just I get to learn about stuff that's like, basically I've known kind of a you know fringe information on, but I've never gotten the full picture on like right. this. So. It's a learning experience for me and for our listeners. So. Hell thanks yeah. For tu- thanks for tuning in. Um, join us for our next episode of Tinfoil Adventure, probably, I don't know, a couple weeks from now. Something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And in the meantime, check out all of our other Armchair Adventure episodes. Andrew Carnegie. The Steel Steel Man. man. The man, wait, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Steel Man? I don't know, whatever. a firm policy not to capitulate to terrorist demands that no concessions policy remains in force in spite of the wildly speculative and false stories about arms for hostages and alleged ransom payments we did not repeat did not trade weapons or anything else for hostages 
my will. The bullet of the bullet. Some freedom or some bullshit. Will we ever do it bigger? Just keep settling for little shit. We brag on having bread, but none of us are bakers. We all talk having greens, but none of us on acres. If none of us on acres and none of us grow wheat, then who will feed our people when our people need to eat? So it seems our people starve from lack of understanding. Cause all we seem to give them is some balling and some dancing. Have some talking about our car and imaginary mansions. We should be indicted for bullshit we inciting. And the children deaf and pretending it's exciting. We are advertisements for agony and pain. We exploit the youth, we tell them to join the gang. We tell them dope stories, introduce them to the gang. Just like I love a North introduced us to cocaine. In the 80s when them bricks came on military plane. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. The end of the Reagan era, I'm like Lemma 12 old enough to understand the shit that changed forever. They declared the war on drugs, like a war on terror, but what it really did was let the police terrorize whoever. But mostly black boys, but they would call us niggas, and lay us on our belly while they fingers on their triggers. They boots was on our head, they dogs was on our crotches, and they would beat us up if we had diamonds on our watches. And they would Take our drugs and monies as they pick our pockets. I guess that that's the privilege of policing for some profits. But thanks to Reaganomics, prison turned to profits. Cause free labor's the cornerstone of U.S. economics. Cause slavery was abolished unless you are imprisoned. You think I am bullshit and then read the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude and slavery, it prohibits. That's why they giving drug offenders time and double digits. Ronald Reagan was an actor, not at all a factor. Just an employee of the country's real masters. Just like the Bushes, Clinton and Obama, just another talking head telling lies on teleprompters. If you don't believe the theory, then argue with this logic. Why did Reagan and Obama both go after Gaddafi? We invading sovereign soil, going after oil. Taking countries is a hobby paid for by the oil lobby. Same as in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm a dinner judge, say they coming for Iran. They only love the rich and how they load the coal. If I say any more, they might be at my door. Who the fuck is that? Staring in my window, doing that surveillance on Mr. Michael Rinder. I'm dropping off the grid before they pump the lid. I leave you with four words. I'm glad Reagan did.